Amen. Amen. As you're being seated this morning, let me encourage you to take out your copy of God's Word or maybe turn on your device. We're going to be continuing through our study of 1 John. 1 John, we find ourselves in the second chapter. So we'll be in 1 John uh, chapter 2 as we're walking through this uh, letter from the Apostle John to the church. Uh, just a, a letter of love and a letter of clarity on who Christ is and what salvation looks like. As you're turning there, one of the things that we have in our culture uh, is phrases or sayings that are called idioms. And they are phrases that left to themselves mean absolutely nothing. They make no sense. One, one such would be something like, it's raining cats and dogs. Now, if you just take those words on face value, they make no sense. If the sky was literally dropping cats and dogs, we would think the apocalypse has hit, right? Like we would be very confraid. But we know when we hear that phrase, that's not literally what it means. You, you might have uh, said this, maybe you were a parent and you had reached your wit's end or maybe you were a competitor in sports and you were ready to go to battle and you would say something to the effect of I'm about to eat his lunch right like that's my dad gave me that speech a lot son I'm about to eat your lunch right and we know that literally didn't mean that he was about to eat my sandwich in my lunchbox right like there's something to that phrase we say things like don't cry over spilt milk we we know there's not actually milk on the table or it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. I don't even know what that means, but it doesn't amount to much, apparently. And so we have these idioms in our vocabulary. One such idiom that we use a lot in our vocabulary is the proof is in the pudding. Now, you may not know this, but that uh, phrase came somewhere out of the 12th century. And what happened was, is in the 12th century, they would prepare meat pudding. We ain't talking jello gelatin cups now. We're talking meat Pudding. So they would butcher the animal, they would prepare the meat, they would stuff it in some sort of lining and then boil it into a pudding and then eat it. The problem was the way they prepared the meat and the lack of refrigeration and cleanliness, oftentimes the meat would be contaminated. And they wouldn't know it's contaminated until they tasted the final product. So the phrase literally was, we'll see when we taste the pudding. Is the meat okay? The proof will be in the taste of the pudding. Now, we've whittled that down to say the proof's in the pudding. And what we mean by that is we'll judge it by the final product. We'll see at the end. We'll, we'll know at the end. We'll, we'll see. You say, I'm, I'm really good at piano. Well, when the recital comes, we'll see, right? We'll, we'll, we'll judge the proof in the pudding. I'm really good at golf, man. I'm a really good golfer. Well, when we're done, we'll look at the scorecard. We'll see the proof. Of course, my scorecard's got some erasing marks and some questionable things, but we'll see at the end. The proof is in the pudding. Now, with that phrase in your mind, here is the, the question for the day. And it's a little bit silly, but here's the question for the day. How's your Christian pudding? That was pretty good, right? What's it look like? You, you say, I, I was saved, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. But what's the product look like? What are you showing? What are you displaying? What are people observing? Is there proof in your Christian life that Jesus has really changed your soul? That he's really transformed your life? That's exactly what John is dealing with in 1 John. He's dealing with the idea that there are some who are claiming they are Christians, and yet their life, their belief, their doctrine, the way they interact with people is totally opposite of what Jesus would have told us. And so he's literally pressing in on them in 1 John, starting in chapter 1 and running through chapter 2. He's pressing in on them simply this idea of if you say, if you claim, in fact, if you were to look in your Bible, you'll see it there in verse 6. 
Uh, in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9, I believe I have that right. He says, if you say, or whoever says, there, there's this claim to be a Christian, but yet something's missing. And so what happens is, is John gives us in the first chapter and in the second chapter this test for Christianity, this assurance. Now, why is this important? Because, brothers and sisters, too often, and especially in the church, we find ourselves at some point wondering if we're really saved. Am I really saved? Did that really happen? I mean, I, I was uh, transformed as a Christian. I was brought into the family of God. I was uh, given my new birth at nine years old. A lot has happened from nine to 38 years old. Did, was that really true? Did that really happen? Was I really saved? What evidence is there to, to say that I'm saved? Am I, am I banking it all on one religious experience in my past? Or is there a test? Well, John gives us a test. He says, here's some evidence you should see. If, if you truly believe to know the Lord, you should have these tests. In fact, theologians would say that John gives us three tests. I'll give them to you quickly on the screen so you can kind of see where John is going. And that's simply this. The, the first test is theological. Did I get Jesus right? Do I have Jesus right? Am I, am I true with my doctrine? If you were to read chapter 1, starting uh, about verse 3 and go down to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. In fact, look in your Bible at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He says that Jesus is our advocate, you'll see that word, and the propitiation in verse 2 for our sin. So that means to be saved, you have to first come to the theological truth of Jesus. That you're a sinner and he's the savior of the world. That he's the son of God, come in the flesh to rescue you from your sin. You have to get Jesus right in order to claim to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and not have Jesus. Those are incompatible. So the theological test is the first one. The second test for salvation is simply one of moral test. And that means simply this, do I desire to obey the Lord? Is there a change in my behavior towards the God who's saved me? Do I want to follow the commands of God? Is there a heart's desire to do what the king is asking of me? It's a moral test. And then finally, the last one would be an ethical test or a social test. And that's simply this, do I love people like Jesus does? If you're truly a Christian, then you should be able to look at your life and say, from the moment of my salvation until today, I've been progressing constantly towards this love of God's commands and love of God's people. That there's this idea I can see. And so what John does is he says, let, let me encourage you. So, so here's what I want to do. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I know I'm a Christian, then I hope this morning this sermon gives you great confidence. I hope you'll hear from the Scripture and by the prompting of the Holy Spirit an assurance of stability because there are days where our faith is attacked. There are days where we're uncertain of what's going on and we need to be reminded we're a child of God. We need to be able to say that and sing that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but you know that, that your confession of Christianity is based on a past religious event or activity and yet there's really no confidence in your life. You're not real sure. You, in fact, if you were to get alone by yourself and contemplate your own death and standing before God, you're, you're pretty nervous about what that will look like. And I pray this morning you will see the truth of what real salvation produces, what comes from it. I, I pray you'll find confidence in the gospel. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. We'll read through verse 11 uh, together. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. Verse 7. Beloved, 
I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is the light who is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the Apostle John who boldly and clearly and by the unction of your spirit writes this letter to the church so that believers can have assurance in their salvation. One of the spiritual attacks, Father, that we get often from the enemy and from those around us is that, that our salvation's not real or that we're, we're uncertain. And so I pray this morning as we, as we walk through your text that those in the room and listening online that are, that are truly your children, that have been saved by your Son and are indwelt by your Spirit, then I pray that, that every verse of this text would just be a brick in their foundation of assurance. That they would have confidence that, that they know they're with you and you, Lord, are with them. Father, for the one who's unsure of their salvation, who's unsure of, of, of what it means to follow Jesus, I pray that today would be clarity and conviction. Lord God, help us to see that, that we ought to be able to see the fruit of salvation. God, help us, teach us, uh, instruct us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John is giving us this test of salvation. He's giving us this exam. He's helping us see what it means to be one who follows Jesus. And he'll do this, I think, by offering us three questions. And the first one you see on the screen, do you desire to obey God's word? You say, I, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Lord, that's great. Then the follow-up question is, if you're really a Christian... Do you desire to obey the Lord? Look, look with me again at verse 3 and 4. We find this text. He says, and by this we know. That means we have the, the facts. We, we know the truth. Because he's going to use the word know here a couple of times. And, and he's using them in different ways. So right here, we, we know, we have the facts, right? What are the facts? That if we've come to know him, that means have a relationship with him. So he's using the word know there differently. To abide in him, to walk in the light, as he will say later. So the fact is, if we've really come to know the Lord... Then, look what the rest of the verse says, we will keep his commandments. We will obey him. But look at verse 4, because here's the claim. Whoever says, now there is the claim that we must wrestle with. There are those who adamantly say, I'm a Christian. I'm with the Lord. I'm following God. I'm on the team. I've been baptized. I walked an aisle. I give an offering. I go to Sunday school. I am a Christian. And so what John is doing is he's not saying that the claim to be a Christian is out of bounds. And can we just stop there for a moment? It is a marvelous thing that we get to claim we have a relationship with God. It is a wonderful truth that God would want a relationship with us. That is not even what John is debating. John's not debating the fact that we can have a relationship with the Holy of Holies, the God of all creation. What he's debating is, is that some people say they have a relationship, but it hadn't done anything to change their life. So he says, you, you claim it, you proclaim, you say you have this, but yet you don't obey his commandments. You're not actually following him. If you say he is my king, but you have no regard for the king's commandments, then how could he be your king? 
How could you really be following him? How could you really be serving him? There is a righteous requirement in following the Lord. Those of us who have come to the Lord Jesus know that it's not just a beckoning to salvation. It's a beckoning not only to salvation, but the denying of yourself and taking up your cross and following after him. It is a a beckoning into him being our Lord. There is a righteous requirement that God commands of his people, and we are called to run after it. And so he says, if you say you know the Lord, but you do not follow his commands, notice what he says. Look with me at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now notice John doesn't say, well, they're kind of confused. Well, they're probably just backslidden. Well, they're probably just gotten off on the wrong path. That's not what John says. John says, if you say you're a believer... And there's no evidence in your life that you care for the commands and obedience to the king, then you're a liar. Now, we're very hesitant to use these terms with one another. We, we certainly know that salvation is the mystery of God and he beholds it. God is able to save who he will want to save, when he wants to save them, however he wants to save them. He can save people on their deathbed. He certainly can save a thief on a cross that never had a day of obeying the Lord until the moment he cried out for salvation. And the Bible says, today you will be in me with paradise. So God saves who he wants to save. So we're, we're very hesitant to use this terminology. But I think the problem is, and hear me now, church, let us rattle our cage for a moment. I think the problem is, is we want some false confidence in a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a loved one. We want to say, yeah, they never went to church. Yeah, Yeah, they never obeyed the Lord. Yeah, they never did anything that looked like a Christian, but they were baptized at three, so at the graveyard we'll have something to say. Brothers and sisters, maybe we should stop faking it and look at John's writings and say, no, that's a lie. And instead of pretending like they're okay, maybe we should run to them with the gospel. Instead of ignoring the issue and acting like it's fine, maybe we should be laboring in prayer that the Lord would actually save them. That they would put no confidence in some fake conversion that produced nothing. Because John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, that the fruit of salvation is obedience to the commandments of God. And so maybe, just maybe the reason why they don't follow the Lord is not because they were once saved and they got out of it. It's because they were never saved. John says, this is what it looks like. You have a heart's desire to obey the Lord. Now, I know the follow-up question. The follow-up question is simply this. Well, how much obedience proves my salvation? That's how our minds work. How, How many boxes do I have to check? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would write it this way. He would say, one who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. So there's this idea that you're going to try to be obedient, right? Like it's going to go together. But the question is, how much obedience? Now, I grew up in a rural Southern Baptist church. And in my rural Southern Baptist church, I had some wonderful Sunday school teachers. And one of my favorite parts of Sunday school was the star chart. We had a chart on the side of our Sunday school room with our names written on it and the dates of the Sundays for the year. And if you attended, you got a golden star. And if you read your Bible that week, you got a golden star. And if you brought an offering, you got a gold. They didn't know I stole it from my brother on the way to church, but you brought an offering you got a golden star. If you invited someone to church, you got a golden star. And so you get all these golden stars, and at the end, when you got all the golden stars, you got the ribbon and the candy, and you were told you were good. And so for me, I don't know about your salvation, but I got so many golden stars as a kid, I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm in the clear. Miss Ruby at Shady Grove Baptist Church told me I'm good because I got golden stars. That's what we think, right? How many commandments do I have? Or maybe you think the other way. Wait a minute. 
John says I'm supposed to follow his commandments to be saved, but, but Pastor, I, I really broke a few this week. Pastor, I'm really struggling in this one area, and I, and I keep tripping and tripping and tripping and tripping, and so, so am I supposed to doubt my salvation now? Because, I, because I, I'm supposed to be obeying him, but I can't seem to obey him, and so, so maybe I'm not really saved. Are you trying to tell me that I'm not really saved? I want you to notice with me what John does. He helps us here. Because our minds can go. We want, a, we want a standard, don't we? Tell me exactly how many times to come to church to count it as obedience. How much money do I actually have to give to count it as obedience? How, how many people do I have to invite to church so that I prove that I'm saved? We want that standard. And, and notice what John does. Look with me at the text. It says in verse 5, But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. You see that word keeps? It's all anchored on that word. That is a present tense verb. It's an active present verb, which means it's an ongoing activity. So here's what John is saying. Here's the, here's, the, here's the settling, deciding factor on whether or not you can trust that you've been saved based on how you view God's commandments. And here it is. You're constantly, consistently trying to do what the Lord has called you to do. You're, you're, try, you're trying to keep progressing towards, as he would say later, the light and not the darkness. There is evidence that you're actively pursuing, not perfection. John would tell us in chapter 1 and in first part of chapter 2 that we say we don't have sin, we're liars, that, that we don't know the truth because we all sin, we all fall. Perfection is not the evidence of salvation, but a declaration to move towards the Lord is. It is following the light. So here's the question. It's simple. When were you saved? When did you come to Christ? When did you declare your affection for Jesus and ask him to forgive you? When were you uh, saying to Jesus, I know I won't have an answer unless you save me? Circle that date, look back towards it, and ask yourself, can you see a progression towards following the Lord's commands? Can you see, it? Can you see a movement towards the kingdom? Are you bent towards the commandments of God? C.H. Dodd would put it this way. He would say, to know God is to experience his love in Christ and to return that love in obedience. If you've truly met God, are you walking towards him? And notice the phrase that he uses there in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now that's a pretty odd phrase. The love of God is perfected. In fact, scholars have kind of been trying to cipher what John meant here for decades or centuries, really. But here's what we know for sure. We know two things. One... We know that when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we experience the ultimate love of God. We experience a God who loves sinners and rescues sinners. We experience a God who shed his own blood for us. We experience a God who in our place took our sin and was crushed for our iniquities. So the overwhelming love of God is found in that salvation. And when we experience that salvation, when we come to that Jesus, when we meet the hero of the story, then our hearts, if they're truly changed, want to go after him and want to follow him. And so here's what perfect salvation looks like. Here's the definition of perfect salvation. Jesus changed me and I want to be changed for him. Jesus saved me and I want to live for him. God redeemed me and I want to follow his Words like the honey from the comb, it's wisdom to me. It's good to me. I want to go after him. So let me ask you a question. How would you say the proof is in the pudding of your life? Would the people around you who you say you're a Christian to, who you claim your faith to, would they say, yeah, I could see that. I see that in the way that he's 
confident or, or looking for the way of God. I see that in her, that she's trying to obey the things of God and the way she acts and moves and behaves. You know what? I, I know he's not perfect. She's not perfect. But I can certainly see that trying to do what the Lord has asked them to do is evident in their life. John gives us a clear understanding of this first test. But I, I like John because John knows Corey's going to need more help. John understands that, that you say follow the commands of God to show you're saved. Well, have you ever read the Old Testament? There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commands. There are commands on top of commands on top of commands. And so my mind immediately thinks, well, which ones do I have to follow and which ones do I not? Right? There's something in there about don't wear two woven types of material together and don't touch pig skin. Well, that'd eliminate football. That can't be what God said. I mean, that's God's sport, right? And so the idea is, is like, well, what do we do here? Which commands do we follow? How, how do I help? Well, the second test, John brings the funnel down a little bit. He says, you really want to know if you're saved? You really want to know if you have a heart that's after the Lord, that God's really changed you? One, you'll have a desire to obey the commands of God. But two, you'll have a desire to live like Christ. So he, st he starts funneling it down now. He says, here's how you'll know. You'll know because you want to look like Christ. You want to live like Christ. Look with me at verse 6. That's where we'll find the answer to this question. Whoever says, there's that claim again, I'm a Christian. I'm with the Lord. I have eternal life. I know God. God knows me. I abide in him. I'm in the light. Whoever says this, whoever claims this, maybe you're here this morning. You claim this. I, I claim this. Whoever says this, well, here's a test. He abides in him, excuse me, he abides in him and ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's that word abide. That means relationship. So he has a relationship with Jesus. That's who the him is here. And he wants to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. So the, so the test for salvation, do I have a desire to obey the commands of God? And do I have a desire to walk in the way of God, meaning Jesus, God, in the flesh? Do I desire to live like Jesus? The word Christian literally means little Christ, to follow Christ. In fact, we, we know from church history that they were, they were called followers and then it became followers of the way, the one who declared that he's the way, the truth, and life. So, so the idea of Christian is to follow Jesus. He's the prototype. He's the example. He's the standard. He's the firstborn among men. He's the one we are to go after. So your salvation, if you say, well, I, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I'm not sure if I'm really with the Lord. Then here's the question. Do you have a desire to be like Jesus? You have a desire to see Jesus as the perfect example that you want to follow, as the one true Son of God that is set before us. Do you, do you see Jesus as the hero of the story and the example you will follow? All of us as children looked up to people. You might have had your favorite sports star or your favorite uh, friend or co-worker that you aspire to have their skills or abilities. You, you looked up to someone. And usually as children, we kind of have this idea of a hero or an idol. We want to throw the ball like Nolan Ryan could or, or run like Bo Jackson, right? We want to do those kind of things. We want to we do this. Well, I, I wish I, I could do that or this. And we, we try to emulate them. We try to act like them. Well, that's exactly what John is putting in front of us. He said, if you truly are a Christian, then you've met Jesus, the Savior who transformed your life. You've, you've met the Son of God. You've met Him as your Savior. He's redeemed you and forgiven you and rescued you. And if you've truly met Him, you'll want nothing else than to be like Him. To walk like Him. To talk like Him. 
to care like he cares, to move like he moved, to think like he thinks. You'll want the hero of the story to be Jesus, and you want your life to emulate him. He will, come, he will become the idol of your heart's affection. This is the call of the believer, that we love Jesus, that we stir up affection for Jesus. So he declares in here, do you live like Christ? Do you follow Christ. Now, why is Christ the hero of the story? Well, go with me to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 again. This is why he's the hero of the story. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, spoiler alert, that's everyone. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have someone with God defending us. And how is he defending us? Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation. I told you last week that words mean satisfy or fulfill or meet. He is the one who meets the righteous requirements of a holy God concerning sin. He is the atonement for our sins. And not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. This is why I want to be like Jesus, because he's the savior of the world. He's the rescuer. He is the prototype. And this is not uncommon in biblical language, by the way, to make Jesus. See, the glorious truth about Jesus is not only is as our savior, which is enough, He's also our example. You see, when we study the life of Jesus, when we read the Gospels, when we walk with Jesus, when we uh, consume the knowledge of Jesus through his word, we find that this is who we're to be. This is the perfect person. This is the man without sin. This is the prototype for us. So he's not just our Savior, but he's also our example. And this is not uncommon in Scripture. Paul would use this idea in Philippians chapter 2, and he would say, Have this mind among yourselves, that you serve one another as Christ served the church. Christ is the example there. Do it like Christ did it. Even in the Gospels, when Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples on the night of his arrest, he puts the towel, he bends down, he washes their feet, he gets his hands dirty. The Savior of the world, the creator of all things, the one who knows everything about them, the one who knows that they're all about to desert him and scatter, he gets on his knees and washes their feet. And then he gets up and he says to them in Matthew chapter 22, as I have done to you, you do also. He set an example. Follow my example. Friend, can I ask you a question? If you claim to be a Christian, if you say, I am a believer, how much time do you spend contemplating Jesus? Studying the scripture to see Jesus. Meditating over just the gospels where Jesus came in, in the flesh, but also the whole Bible, because the Bible is God's word, which is Jesus. How much time do you spend thinking this? When, when I was a child, the, the big thing was WWJD. We had the bracelets on our wrist. And what would Jesus do? It was a pretty neat sentiment. The idea was, is, is a real Christian wants to be really like Christ. So how much time do you spend studying Jesus, pouring over his word, wanting to follow him and his example? You see, I, I'm convinced we'll spend a lot of time watching YouTube videos on our favorite golf swing to get it right. We'll spend a lot of time watching hunting shows to figure out what the best call is to kill the deer. We'll spend a lot of time in the monogram room trying to get the monogram. I've got to work on my ladies' examples. I apologize right now. The idea of we'll, we'll study whatever we idolize. But Christianity is to idolize the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you following him? Let me give you a third test and we'll be finished. And that's simply this. John says... Not only do we have a desire to obey God, do we have a desire to be like Christ, but a third test to see if you're truly a believer, if you've truly been saved, is simply this, do you have a desire to love others? Verse 7 and 8 serve as kind of a transition. 
He's moving, again, he's moving the funnel down. He says, first, I want you to obey the commandments of God, but that's pretty vast. And then he says, make it even clearer, oh, follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, there's evidence there that you're a believer. But then he goes down even further, and he says, not just follow Jesus, but follow Jesus as he loved the world. And he gives us the command. Look at verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Verse 8. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining through. And so here's what he says. He says, listen, here's what it looks like to be a believer. It's picking up the old commandment again. And what was that commandment? What commandment? Notice with me, if you will, just in your Bible, when he references follow or obey God over in verse 3 and 4, if you look right there, it says commandments with an S. It's plural. It's general. Follow the, the teaching of God. And then he says, follow Jesus. And now he funnels that all the way down. If you look at verse 7 and 8, it's singular, the commandment. What is the commandment of Jesus? Well, that's an easy answer. Jesus answered this for us in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, the young ruler comes to him, the young scribe, the young lawyer comes to him and says, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? What should I do? How can I know that I'm saved? What do you expect of me? And Jesus said, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then Jesus added the second one and said, and the second one is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the commandment of Jesus. Love God, love people. Here's what it looks like to be a believer. You have a passionate desire to love the Lord and a passionate desire to love his people, to love others, to be changed in the fact that other people matter now to you, that others are first in your vocabulary. This is the kingdom of God. This is Christianity taking root. Galatians would tell us that faith is love worked out, that it's doing something, that it's moving. And so this is the call of the Christian. You want to know whether or not you're a true believer? Do you obey the commands of God? Do you want to be like Jesus? And do you care for others? You have place in your life for other people. Are you caring for those that are around you? Are you giving yourself to those desires? Now notice verse 7 and 8 because it's a little bit funny. He says, I'm not giving you a new commandment. This is an old one. This is from the beginning. This is the, the entire gospel. This is God himself. God loves people. I'm thankful that God loves people. I'm part of people. I'm thankful that God loves people. This is from old. And John would even say, from the very beginning of me, the apostle John witnessing to you, I told you this was the gospel. That you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love others as yourself. This is not new. But then notice verse 8, because he talks out of the other side of his mouth. He says, verse 7, it's not a, it's not a new commandment. Then verse 8, at the same time, it's a new commandment. Say, what? I'm sorry, I, I missed that, John. It's, it's old, it's new. What is this, a wedding? Give me something blue, give me something used. Like, what, what are we doing here? I don't, come on, that was kind of funny. I don't know what we're doing. Notice what he says. He says, it's a new commandment. In him. You ever listen to somebody that's really good at something uh, change the way you hear it? Like, like I, I've been to some kids' piano recitals, and I've listened to kids play the piano, and it's, it's questionable. And then I, I've sat on the pew and, and watched Murray and Debbie and Miss Lisa play the piano, and, and man, that's different. That's, that's different level. That's, that's changing it, Right? I've I've hit some golf balls before. I I enjoy golf. I've hit some golf balls. And then I had the opportunity to go to a practice round at the Masters and watch Tiger hit a golf ball up close. That ain't the same thing. One's an old way and and one's a new way. I I like cake. I'm a a cake fan. If you're not a cake fan, you 
That might be in the scripture as a test for Christianity. But, but I'm a cake fan. I like cake. Usually at our house, cakes are, my daughters enjoy making cakes, and they'll make a box cake for me. They'll buy one of those kits, and, and it's really good. I, I love it. And then I've had a Phyllis Davis cake. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Phyllis Davis. She's a member of our church, and she makes cakes, uh, and, and you can book those. I get no kickback for this advertisement, by the way. But, but you, can, you can get her cakes. Now, I've made the box strawberry cake, and then I've had the Phyllis Davis and, and I don't know if you know this or not, but, but when you open the box of the Phyllis Davis cake, heaven's light shines down on it. And angels appear in the realms of glory. Because it's, it's next level. It's different. Can, I mean, some of you know this, right? Amen? It's different. This is what John is saying. Listen now. You've heard that you're supposed to love God and love people. The old commandment. But now you've seen Jesus do it. Man, that's different. That's new. That's, that's, it's the same commandment, but the masters touched it. The, the cake bakers got a hold of it. He's picked it up and he showed you what it looks like. And so, and so now he's, he's looking at us and he's saying, you, you've heard you're supposed to love people. But when you come to Christ, when Christ grips your heart, when the Spirit invades your soul, when you know that Jesus is your Savior, now it's supposed to look different. Now it's supposed to move differently. Because, because notice what he says in there in verse 8. It was in him and now it's in you. You're supposed to, to have this love. It's not supposed to be some religious um, drudgery that we have to love people. It's supposed to overflow from a passion that Jesus has saved us. And that he's changed. And notice what this love looks like for other people. Notice what he says in the rest of the text. He says in verse 9, whoever says that uh, he's in the light, that means has this relationship, abides with God, I'm a Christian, and hates his brothers in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Notice that he doesn't give us categories for degrees here. You either love people or you hate them. And if you hate them, if they're a nuisance to you, if they're a bother, if they're in your way, if you think they're foolish, if those who don't agree with you, you X them out, you move them on, you push them aside, you don't want to have anything to do with them, then that's not the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have hard conversations with people. It doesn't mean we don't practice church discipline. It doesn't mean we don't disagree. It doesn't mean there aren't distances between people because of relations and issues and, and drawing lines in the center. I'm not declaring that. What I'm simply saying is if your heart's desire is not for people to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and for them to have what's the very best for them in the kingdom, then just maybe you don't understand the gospel. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel says that Jesus Christ came and died for all people. Go back and read Chapter 2, verse 2, for the sins of the world. So when I have a view like Jesus has that the whole world needs my Savior, then I'll have a different affection for the world. I'll have a different love for the world. I'll have a different view of my neighbor and friend and co-worker because I want to be like Jesus. Jesus said, the greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he would go on to say in Matthew chapter 22, verse 10, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's it. That's the, that's the test of Christianity. So, so here's the question. Here's the summation. If you were to say, I am a Christian, 
I'm in the light. I abide with the Lord. Those are the words that he uses. Whoever claims, if you make that claim, is it evident in the way that you desire to obey the Lord, live like Jesus, and love people? Can you see the evidence of salvation in your life? If you can, if you say, well, I really don't give much thought to the commands of God. I really don't give a lot of attention to Jesus. I really have no care for Jesus. I really don't put him in a stool. I certainly don't let people get in my life that mess with me because I'm doing my thing. And maybe, brothers or sisters, you need to go back and read chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 and confess your sin and be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you say, well, you know what? I've been doubting my salvation a little bit. Well, brother, sister, can I encourage you? If you see yourself trying to follow the Lord, if you see yourself trying to be like Jesus, if you're actively walking towards the light and not the darkness, and if you find yourself wanting to help and encourage people, then might I suggest to you that that's exactly what John is showing you as evidence of, hey, you're, you're part of the kingdom. You're in the family. You've been changed. We should say this and we'll be done. The mystery of salvation is God's. God saves people. God redeems people. God forgives people. He does that on deathbeds and on crosses at the last minute. He does it for children. He does it for adults. He does it for nations and, and, and men and women. God saves people. And salvation is the transforming work of the Spirit to change our heart of stone for a heart of flesh that beats for Him, to forgive us our sins and wash them away. That's the work of Jesus. But if that work has happened in your life, and I believe the old song will be true. You will not only trust Him, but you will trust and obey. And because you're trusting and obeying, you will have, as the other old song says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning I pray that for the believer in the room, there is great confidence in the sermon. That they've heard the text and they've looked over their life and maybe even by the prompting of your Spirit, you've encouraged them, you've edified them, you've built them up. You've reminded them, hey, you're going the right way. You're doing the right thing. Don't give up. Keep walking in the obedience. Keep running after Jesus. Keep loving others. You're, you're doing it. So for the believer that's here, Lord, I, I pray that this, this text, this sermon, John's writings would just strengthen our faith. Give us confidence to know that blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Nothing can remove that. Lord, I pray for the one who has spent their life doubting their salvation. They're doubting their religious activity and if they did it right and, and what happened and, and what age they were and they just had these doubts. I pray, Lord, they would lay their life next to these tests. You would examine them and, and, and show them the truth that they are truly believers or that they really do need to come to Jesus. I pray for the one who might be watching online or sitting in the room that They've built all of their salvation on a routine and a past experience. And there's no evidence that they're trying to obey the Lord, follow Jesus, or love others. I pray right now, Father, your spirit would fall on them. And they would cry out for salvation. And you would redeem them and save them. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and sing with us a song of invitation. I want to invite you. Maybe this morning you're a believer and, and you're uh, 
proof in the pudding has been a little bit diminished lately. Your desire to follow His commands or live like Jesus or love others has kind of waned. And you just want to come and pray, Lord, stir up in me a a heart to run after You. Maybe you know someone that that you've allowed yourself to just, just think they're saved so it makes you feel better, but you know based on their life there's no evidence. There's no fruit of salvation. And so maybe now is a time for courage. You come and pray for them. You, you lift their name to Jesus and you go and declare the truth to them. Maybe this morning you realize, I'm not sure I'm a Christian based on John's words. I need a life change. You want to come and give your life to the Lord. Whatever the case may be, this altar will be open. If you want me to pray with you, I'm more than willing to slip on my mask and put my arm around you. Whatever the case may be, I I pray that you'll leave here having confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation. Lord, bless us now as we stand and sing to you and try to honor you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning?